Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkoff, and I am coming to you from an undisclosed location in a bunker somewhere let's say, in the New Jersey area. In the Washington, D.C. area, we've got Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. We have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And we have David Frum, a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of the very good book, which if you haven't gotten it, you should go and pick it up, Trumpocracy, um, which grows more timely uh, with each passing day even as other books come into the news. We'll get to some of those other books in a minute. But, you know, given the, the nature of life on, on, on planet Washington at the moment, uh, you know, yesterday's news is quickly overtaken and, 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 and often forgotten. And I found the McCain funeral to be sufficiently noteworthy that that but that I don't want to just skip over it as of yet. And David, I know you've got some background as having written speeches and also writing about this kind of thing. Uh, and I assume, therefore, you have you know a special appreciation for how words, oratory, public displays such as that uh, can affect the course of affairs in a country. Sometimes they seem like a turning point. It was a very, very powerful ceremony. Nothing more powerful, I think, than Meghan McCain's um, uh, eulogy for and um, uh, speaking on behalf of her father. And I'm wondering whether you think that this was significant, it will resonate, or whether we are in an area in which each day's big news becomes the next day's forgotten news. I was impressed by how John McCain himself and the McCain family staged this series of events. There, there were three ceremonies um, in Arizona, in the U.S. Capitol, and in the National Cathedral uh, to send a message. When the Trump people complained that John McCain used his funeral politically, they were right, but it was his funeral. He's allowed to use it however he wanted. And what McCain did was to group almost every force in the American state, including people like Mitch McConnell, who presided at this, um, lying in and made some remarks at the Capitol, people who might not have had a lot of use for John McCain, to align them all to say, this is the American political system, and then to exclude the present president from the United States from that legitimate political system. That was very powerful. Is it enduring? Um, I was... Um, in Canada at the time, uh, for the summer at the time John McCain died, and I drove back to Washington during the period of mourning um, through upstate New York and through rural Pennsylvania. I was quite startled by how many 
on homes and businesses, not government institutions, how many flags were at half staff in memory of John McCain? Um, I was flying to an area where there are a lot of veterans, Western Pennsylvania, and, and he clearly spoke to that world. I don't think a presidency like Trump's gets delegitimated by any one thing all at once. It dies by degrees. Um, and John McCain's message, I, I think it's just part of the the political gravity that is separating Donald Trump from the American state. Um, Ed, you know, you coming from England, as you do, come from a place that has a lot of appreciation for ceremony. Um, and also a huge amount of cynicism about that kind of thing. And I'm wondering which side of your English nature for observing this dominated uh, as you watched the ceremony. Uh, my my non-cynical side, for, for the most part. I mean, I, there, there was one cynical tinge, which I'll mention in a, in a second. But I, I mean, I'd agree with David that... Uh, I mean, this was an extraordinarily arranged posthumous revenge. Um, uh, by McCain. Revenge is probably to belittle what his motives were. Um, I think he wanted a statement of his values of the best of America and and, and the broadest possible range of um, uh, American politics to um, to g g give expression to that. Um, but it was it was a spectacle unlike anything uh, I've ever seen either side of the Atlantic. Uh, you know, to have. Um, two former presidents, the two immediate um, predecessors, they're speaking, and another one, they're not speaking. Every secretary of state you could think of, um, uh, you know, the party leaderships, uh, past and, and um, present, all there, everybody except the sitting president, um, was was just a remarkable spectacle. And, and you, you sort of reach for um, uh, equivalent memorial or funeral services in, in stately history um, to compare with this. And, and I think it's it's kind of sui generis. There's nothing quite like this. The, the cynical tinge that I have, you know, is that we did see all kinds of people um, in, in that audience. Um, you know, we saw the John Boltons, we saw Jared and Ivanka, we saw Mitch McConnell, as David mentioned. We saw all kinds of people who I don't think represent the message that John McCain uh, actually wanted to send, which is do not cow to, do not be browbeaten by a sort of a wannabe autocrat. Um, and Lindsey Graham, of course, was perhaps the best example of that. There are a lot of people in that congregation who um, are very much um, a bent around Trump's little finger. And, and so, you know, that, that sort of, that, that, that brought out whatever cynical side I have, but by and large, it was a remarkable spectacle. It was a breathtaking spectacle. Now, Rosa, unlike Ed, you come from a tradition where you only have a cynical side. So how did you look at it? <laughs> That's true. No, um, no I, I'm not that cynical about this. I, you know, I I think David is right. It was the as a one more nail and a pretty powerful symbolic nail uh, sort of in in the coffin, if you will, of of you know Trump's total isolation from the rest of the establishment, the political establishment. You know, even if you are a Trump supporter, it it was an you know an incredibly visible signal of everybody's here, not him. Um, and I suppose, I mean, I guess the question that it left me with is, you know, how does that get read by 
his uh, admittedly dwindling group of supporters? You know, does it does it get read as, huh? This gives me pause. Maybe my guy is uh, not the guy, not the you know horse I should be backing here, or does it simply cement the sense of, you know. I'm backing him in the first place because I feel that I am the underdog and I feel that he's the underdog. And the more other people isolate him, the more determined I am to back him uh, all the way. That, that I think, is, is still the, the unknown. Well, it's, it's very interesting to have watched this McCain funeral, which I found extremely moving in parts. Um, and compelling uh, on its face precisely because of what all of you are talking about, which is that it was a, a, a essentially a plea orchestrated from beyond the grave by John McCain for traditional values among people who would acknowledge that they are imperfect people and that they are sometimes partisan, but that there is this desire to aspire to something better, uh, that the institutions and the laws and the norms are really what we should keep our eye on, and that we can't let personalities um, or momentary you know, concerns distract from that. Um, and, and yet, you know, within a day, we, we have... Trump being Trump. I mean, even that day, Trump went off to play golf. And well, especially that day. I mean, I, th- I think it's completely consistent with everything we know about Trump that that this would just inspire him to, you know, new heights of boorishness. Well, and and that's saying something, David. New heights of boorishness. Well, Have you seen any of the the the, the early clips from Bob, Bob Woodward's book Fear? Oh yes. And I listened to the audio audio tape between um, Bob Woodward and, and Donald Trump and Kellyanne Conway, which I, I recommend uh, because you can hear yeah. in real time what happens when you catch first Donald Trump and then Kellyanne Conway in a succession of lies. Very And Woodward does this elegantly, but with no squiggle room. Um, and Trump is forced to back away from a lie. Kellyanne is forced to first try to brazen it out. Then she throws colleagues under the bus. And you can hear Trump moving. From at the beginning, he's by his standards comparatively suave, um, and by the end, he is angry and defensive and above all self-pitying. Um, that's and you realize that's his fundamental mood. And and one of the things, the way that this all, I think, the way that this comes unstuck is, I think there are people who have a vision of Trump as because he's so belligerent, is therefore strong. But as I think those of you who have experience in foreign policy know that belligerence usually conceals inner weakness. The, the truly strong don't have to remind everybody, hey, we've got 14 carrier groups and all the, half the world's gold and half the world's fresh farmland if anybody cares to tally it up. But in the meantime, we can be polite. Um, uh, and that, I think, that was a signal from also from McCain's funeral. Trump did not go ballistic on Twitter, as you might have expected. And as at another time, he would. would. It's as if he'd been cowed, as if he realized this... Even I can recognize today would be a bad day for me to speak out. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's clear that in the background, 
Trump behaves worse than he does even on Twitter. And, you know, you've got in this Woodward book, Ed, the senior people around the president calling him an idiot or unhinged or having the understanding of a fifth or sixth grader or calling him a fucking liar or saying if they put him in front of, uh, 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 you know, Mueller, you know, he's going to end up in an orange suit or having to explain to him that we have troops on the Korean Peninsula in order to avoid World War III, or he is not up for the job. They say he's not up for the job. He's worse behind the scenes than he is in the little glimpses we see of him. And yet nobody in this orbit of Trump does anything about it. No, it's clear he's unfit. And yet nobody does anything about it. You see, I, I think I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with everything you've just said. But um, I think it's been clear he's been unfit since before he was elected. Um, and I think Woodward's book, I haven't read it. I've read the excerpts. I've read the transcript of that Woodward um, Kellyanne Trump three way. I haven't listened to it. I'm now going to listen to it um, uh, for Trump's change of mood. But uh, this, this is uh this is shocking and unsurprising at the same time, uh, what's being revealed. All these terms, calling him a fifth grader, we've heard before. I mean, we, we Tillerson called him a fucking moron um, in a room that Mattis was, you know, apparently present to. Um, Kelly is before, you know, in previous books, um, Michael Wolff's book um, and, uh, and other sort of reports in the media, been calling Trump all kinds of names. Um, none of this is is um, actually going to change our view of Trump. None of this is game changing or sort of paradigm shifting. We, we've always known this. And there are sort of interesting little dimensions and details and nuggets and anecdotes that get thrown up every now and then. Um, but I suspect that this Woodward book is not going to be a game changer. And to tie it in with your former questioning about the McCain funeral, I don't think that will be either. I think that there is a, a Trump base out there that might be dwindling. It's still got a very, a fairly hard floor of, of, of maybe, you know, 35 percent of America, whatever it might be. Um, uh, they, they, they're not going to see that McCain funeral to the extent that they watched it as anything other than a collection of all the establishment people railed against Trump. That's just going to confirm their worldview. And the Woodward book is just more, it's more stuff from the gusher. It's just more noise. Um, so I, I don't think either of these are game changing. I do think that they could be significant to the extent that they send Trump himself and his instincts and his behavior in an even more demented spiral. And, and that, of course, you know, could materially change change the climate here, um, particularly in election season. Um, but uh, uh, but that I also assumed was happening anyway. Rosa, one of the things we've talked about on this show periodically is what's the right thing for a government official to do when you see a president who's unhinged, ill-equipped, when you fear the president, you know, and I... I was wondering what Bob Woodward's title, Fear, was about. But the more I read this, the more I read this as about fearing the president himself, even among his staff. Um, we've talked about whether it's better to stay, to act as a counterbalance, 
or whether it's better to leave. Um, but there, you know, another thing comes to mind, which is all of these people are there. They're saying all of these things behind the scenes. They're now saying these things on the record uh, to people like Woodward or allowing themselves to be put in a position to be quoted in, in those circumstances. But they are not doing anything to stop him. They are not achieving anything by well, saying. Or except, of course, in some sense, you, you could say that they are. I, I don't think this takes away from that fundamental conundrum, but but uh, I'm, I'm only going on the, the excerpts from Woodward's book that were in the Washington Post uh, uh, today. I haven't seen the full book yet, but but it gives a number of examples of people doing things to prevent Trump from being as bad as Trump w instincts were impelling him to be. And those things um, range from, uh, you know, all the way up to possible actual, you know, insubordination, right? That they range from things like, um, uh, here's, the, here's the defense example, and I'll, I'll read you the lines from uh, the article describing this. After Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad launched a chemical attack on civilians in April 2017, Trump called Mattis and said he wanted to assassinate the dictator. Let's fucking kill him. Let's go in. Let's kill the fucking lot of them, Trump said, according to Woodward. Mattis told the president that he would get right on it. But after hanging up the phone, he told the senior aide, we're not going to do any of that. Um, so, you know... That's doing something, saying, I'm going to ignore him. I'm going to basically ignore those orders because I think he will either forget them or he will retract them. And so I'm not going to pay any attention to what the president of the United States and the commander in chief just told me to do. Um, that's not an insignificant thing, especially in terms of the military chain of command. We have other examples of people like uh, uh, Gary Cohn, um, I think it was. I'm, I'm scrolling through this article quickly. Yeah, no, it's it's Gary um, Cohn. Yeah, who who you know Trump decides he he wants to withdraw. You know, should we withdraw from? Um, I'm, I'm trying to. There, there were a couple Korea. of examples. I, I, right. I there was one on South Korea, and there was one that I think was on NATO or NAFTA. Um, they all they all tend to blend together since Trump wants to withdraw from pretty much everything he can withdraw from. And the uh, response of Cohn, and I think there's another example in which it's Rob Porter uh, who's involved. Um, to Trump being about to sign off, sign a piece of paper, um, giving an order that they considered reckless, was to simply remove the piece of paper from his desk on the theory that he would not remember it anymore. And apparently he didn't. Um, so, so, you know, the, the, the optimistic read on this, the glass half full read on this is, thank God we have people who are not utterly lost to good sense, um, uh, who are actively intervening at some personal risk of, you know, being fired, et cetera, and possibly engage. These are acts that are arguably unlawful. Um, and thank God. And they are, in fact, stopping Trump from being as bad as Trump would otherwise be. Oh, good. We hope they stay. You know, the, the other way to look at this is that they're enabling uh, and, uh, you know, that, that letting Trump be as catastrophic as Trump wants to be might be the only way that we finally, he does something so awful that he does get impeached. Um, you know, and I, and I think particularly on the Mattis, uh, issue, you know, it does raise this sort of interesting question. You know, when do you get to say, uh, the commander in chief's orders are 
are unhinged. Um, and I'm pretty sure he's going to forget about that. So I'm going to just let everybody, I'm not even going to pretend that I'm doing it to my subordinates. I'm going to say, yeah, we're not doing that. Uh, he'll forget about it. As it happens, he was right. Trump did forget about it. But is, is that what we want people to be doing? I think the answer to this question is, is more situational and maybe not completely binary. I mean, it depends on the job, right? I mean, that um, this country needs a secretary of defense. And thank God James Mattis is there. The country can get by um, without a White House press secretary, and no honorable person should or indeed would take that job. And so you're left with the people who have it now. Um, I think there's, uh, there, there is one answer, however, that is, is clearly wrong, and that is what Rex Tillerson has done. Uh, it's one thing to say, you know what, I, I don't think much of this president, but I will do my best to serve the country. The United States needs a secretary of state. I will do that job as long as I honestly can. And then something happens where you say, I just can't do the job anymore, or he's too dangerous, or something has happened. What you must not do is go quietly. Um, and what, what Tillerson's actions as post-Secretary of State, I think, are truly um, wrong. That if, if, you, if you are leaving because you think the things about Rex Tillerson that he said and that Bob Wood, Woodward quotes and gives even more horrifying context to, um, and you just leave it like that, and, and Or maybe you talk to Bob Woodward and put some of these stories indirectly on the record. I mean, it's your job, I think, at that point to insist on being called to before a congressional committee and to testify about what happened. Um, it, it's your job to go on television and with your face on it and your name, stake your credibility. Your reputation is not more important than the future of the country. And, I, and of course, the president will attack you. Um, but other Americans have done more um, at greater physical risk. Uh, you should. This is your job. You now do this. You have to show a little bit more self-sacrificing courage. It's not much that we're asking. Just a few days of bad publicity, the Republican Party being mad at you, hostile senators, and, and let the country know. And maybe no one person can make a difference. If three go on the same day, I mean, part of the job is making your resignation count. Make it count. Make it um, serve as long as you can, but when you must go, make it count. David, uh, just to follow up on that, you know, you wrote a great book about Trump and where it was all leading. Um, and and it was very timely and and I, and I think it, it remains very insightful. But I wonder if having done that and looking at things that are currently being reported, you feel as if there is a decay going on. You mean a decay inside Trump? I mean, there, there are two in, ways to answer Inside it. Trump, inside the administration. I mean, <laughs> Look, is it, it becoming it, more dysfunctional? If you watch the Lester Holt tape in full, and pr Trump's uh, denial, the insistence that it's been tampered prompted me to do this, I am struck that there's a mental deterioration in Trump, even from the beginning of the administration, never mind as compared to 10 or 15 months ago. And part of that may be just the, the Russia thing whirring away inside his brain, um, upsetting him. But he, he does seem to be in, in greater trouble. Um, and uh, the act, remember the Axis of Adults, which was supposed to include Gary Cohn and H.R. McMaster, those are the two co-authors of that very important op-ed from early 2017, America First Does Not Mean America Alone. They're both gone. Um, Rex Tillerson is gone. Um, and Trump's behaviors have become more aggressive. What is protecting us is because Trump 
insists on actually every day reading aloud the evil plan that the villain is only supposed to reveal. Well, the villain should never reveal the evil plan. Anyone who's been to a Bond movie knows that. Um, but actually, you, he reveals his evil plan even before Bond is tied up. And, and his lack of understanding of where the power points are in the U.S. government. So he's not able to make his intentions as effective as he would like. Um, but, you know, these midterms are going to be very important. Um, he has an important base of support. As it should the Republicans take losses, what remains of the party will be more tightly bound to Donald Trump. And I think we're pretty obviously heading to a series of crises. One last thing that is worth worrying about, and um, Rose's point about John Mattis ignoring the orders. Uh, I, I write in Trumpocracy about the risks of what I call autoimmune disorders. That is the system responding self-defensively to Donald Trump by the military and intelligence aspects of the government breaking loose from civilian control and um, do, doing things that are understandable and even necessary, but that have tremendous long-term consequences for the way the country will be governed in the future. I mean, how easy will it be for, for example, the House and Senate Intelligence Committees um, ever to gain the kind, regain the kind of information flow from the agencies they had before Devin Nunes chaired those committees, before the House committee. Interesting. Ed, you want to pick up on that? I'm just interested in your thoughts on the same vein. Uh, the autoimmune, the, David's final point um, in terms of the systems. Well, and also just sort of the gradual decay and where we're headed, because, you know, we've got this book coming out. It's going to dominate the news for a couple of weeks. Don't know what Mueller's going to do. In the middle of that, there's going to be a Kavanaugh confirmation almost inevitably. But you're going to have this, and it's going to skew numbers. Poll numbers are going to look worse. The pressure is going to build on Trump. And as David points out, he already looks diminished from where he was before, and before he didn't seem fit. So I'm just, you know— are we re heading into a period that's much, much darker than even what we've seen thus far? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, my, my, my fear is that we are. Um, you know, I think we've got the most significant event that we've got on the horizon is the midterm election. Um, and I think, uh, you know, if in the unlikely event the polls are wrong again, as they were in 2016, and um, the Republicans do some man somehow manage to cling on um, to the House, that then we're we're in a sort of very dramatic territory where Trump feels sort of massively, multiply vindicated and and commensurately empowered. But I don't consider that to be to be likely. But we should treat you know uh, polling um, uh, probabilities with great circum circumspection. If uh, if the polls do happen to be right, and the House does does uh, flip, uh, one of Trump's favourite words, um, then. Uh, uh, I, I think that we're into <laughs> uh, we're we're into a a field day of investigative um, um, exposure. Uh, it's going to be quite extraordinary. I think we're going to have televised hearings in the House Judiciary Committee. I think we're going to have the likes of Michael Cohen attempting um, attempting to become um, national stars. Um, I think we're going to have a paralysis of what little um, resources the White House has left in, in terms of being able to function and to provide legal counsel to the president. We're going to have just complete overwhelming uh, of that. And so a paralysis of executive function. And that just by anything and everything we know of Trump's psychology and how he responds to feelings of being besieged um, is going to produce 
much worse Trump instincts. So I can't see how it, it, it's not going to get darker. Um, I, I do think, though, that the spectacle of having the first branch of government doing its job, if the Democrats are, you know, are able to do it um, uh, with some degree of sort of calm and professionalism, the spectacle of the first branch of government doing its job and holding the second branch to account and providing oversight into it, um, you know, is is ultimately how the system is supposed to work. So if that's if there's a silver lining to the darkness we're heading into, that 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 would be it. I think you're overly optimistic about the likelihood of the Democrats being, you know, dignified, et cetera. Quite, quite, quite probably. Quite I mean, probably. As, a, as a lifelong Democrat, uh, the ability of the Democrats to really fuck it up um, is is always been breathtaking to me. So I'm not actually optimistic. I, I, I had two thoughts listening to you. One, Ed, as you talked about the a paralysis, I thought thinking of all these collective nouns, like, you know, a flock of birds and a coven of witches and a pride of Lions. I was thinking uh, a, a paralysis of pundits uh, might be the new collective noun for what do we call no, it? I thought you were going, I thought a, <laughs> a, I thought a paralysis of Congress people might be even better. Yeah, but there's no alliteration there. So I, I, I would say golden age of pundits. I mean, <laughs> this is this I'm, is quite fun for. Well, but, but I was thinking more more broadly about one, one of the, the things that struck me as, as I was listening to the rest of you um, is going back to Woodward's book title, Fear, and is it fear of Trump? What What, what is it exactly? And and you think, why would people be afraid of Trump? He's, he's sort of a buffoon. He's this ridiculous figure. You know, everybody who is, everybody who is close to him comes out saying things like he has the intellect of a, you know, you pick five-year-old, 10-year-old. Every now and then people get up to about 11 or 12. You know, he's, he's, he's got a short attention span. He's self-obsessed. Uh, you know, he's a moron, people say. Um, so why is everybody so scared of him? But that, of course, immediately made me think of the kinds of things that people said about Hitler, you know. And, you know, Hitler was not taken seriously. You know, he was not taken seriously within not just I don't just mean he was not taken seriously in the United States or in the UK, but he was not taken seriously initially within Germ German politics. He was viewed as a complete buffoon. I was actually just uh, looking at a book by Volker Ulrich that Michiko Kakatani reviewed uh, back a couple months before the 2016 election and looking at some of the language that Hitler's colleagues and major figures in German politics used to describe him before his rise to power. You know, they talked about his capacity for bottomless mendacity, his inability to distinguish between lies and truth, uh, uh, the fact that he was an egomaniac who only loved himself, um, a rabble rouser, a clown, impulsive, keen eye for other strengths and weaknesses. And, and, you know, yet Hitler is, is, is an example, the ultimate example of someone who was viewed as just a, a sort of a joke. And yet obviously not only rose to power, but, but used that power, uh, to destroy more human beings than really, you know, I you never want to say anybody else in human history, but who knows, but, but a whole lot. Right. Um, and, and I think that the, the really frightening thing, you know, about watching Trump is watching somebody who is similarly buffoonish. And in some ways, as, as you've all said, we knew about this before he was elected. This isn't a surprise. This wasn't just revealed last weekend or something, you know, and yet how is it 
that someone who everyone says this guy is ridiculous, don't take him seriously, he's an idiot, not only ended up in the White House, but is consistently getting people to do not everything he wants, but most of what he wants. Um, and I actually don't really think it's fear at this point, frankly, although there may be some of that. And I think certainly, obviously, for Hitler at a certain point, it was absolutely fear. I think it's 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 more craven than that. It's opportunism. You know, that there are people who have, you know, hitched their wagon to him um, and they could stop him and they don't want to because they think that they are going to come out of this OK. And, it, and then at some point, even if they start thinking, well, uh oh, maybe he's going down. The fear is the fear is about their own personal fortunes, you know, not not anything to do with fear of Trump retaliation. But that, that may be wrong. But but I you know, I, David is David uh, from is our is our expert on this. But when you think about the ways in which this this certainly seems part and parcel of a slide towards authoritarianism, uh, you know, the parallels with other moments, uh, other bad moments in recent human history are, are very striking. I'm sure Mike Pence spends a lot of time, and the people around him spend a lot of time thinking, how do we slide this guy out of here without it bringing down the whole party structure around us? Um, and the, the problem that they face is um, that the, the, there's no obvious way to do that. Uh, that if, if getting rid of Trump means ripping apart the Republican Party, uh, and that means Mike Pence goes down in the crash along with everybody else. Um, and that that is probably the true rationalization, or the true sorry, the true reason, not the rational. The rationalization that so many people stay, not Mattis. I mean, he's a different order of human being. But but um, most of those who are reasonably competent people in the White House, they say, well, I'm saved. I'm I'm here to save, serve the country. No, they're really here to try to figure out a way to get Trump out and Pence in. Um, but executing that will be will be very difficult. And Trump, as as Rosen said, he's he's a um, there are a lot of ways in which he's he's kind of. Um, Negligible, but there are other ways in which he's a very shrewd and cunning survivor. And and what he has, I, mean, I resist other historical comparisons, but one of the things that, that people like Trump tend to be very good at is measuring the weakness of others. They may have no self-knowledge, but they know the weak points in others. And um, it is that Trump is able, able to browbeat and humiliate and subjugate uh, people like General Kelly. I mean, if, if, it, if there were a day when there were four resignations all at the same time and all the four people resigned and went up to Capitol Hill and said, this man's out of his mind. He's going to get us in a war that we're going to lose. Um, that would have an impact. And yet he's able to browbeat them into not doing it. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's very disturbing. And on top of it, you know, I sort of Rosa sort of laid on a thought that I hadn't really had, which is all these people around him, Feel that they, you know, may be serving the country even by sort of snatching away presidential prerogatives and ignoring his orders. Um, and the ethics of that aside, it also gives them more power. So they're able to be in sort of senior positions. And so long as they negate the president or placate him, they're able to continue on and achieve the things that they want to achieve. One of those things, by the way, you know, seems to be. Let's pack the courts of the United States with as many sort of hard right justices as we can. And, you know, it's very clear that Mitch McConnell is looking at the clock and he's looking at all this other stuff 
And they're like jamming this thing through, you know, like, let's approve them. Who cares? We don't have the papers. Here's 42,000 pages worth of stuff, you know, six hours before we begin. Don't worry about it. You know, we're, that, we're in the that, rush. That, that's ordinary politics, though, right? I mean, that that's standard political hardball, which which historically the Democrats are crappy at. And I'm still really mad at Barack Obama about not fighting harder on Merrick Garland and, and frankly, about nominating him in the first place. Uh, but that's another story. Um, but but that to me, I, you know, to me, the thing that the stuff that really strikes fear in my heart is not the kind of standard political hardball. We would get that if Pence was in office. We would get that, you know, if Mitt Romney was in office um, of, you know, hey, uh, I'm the president. I'm going to try to pack the court with justices of my ideological persuasion uh, if I possibly can. It, the, it's the stuff, of the, the sort of total refusal to abide by, I was about to say normal norms, which is uh, obviously redundant, but but uh, you know the, the 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 usual norms of ethical, appropriate political behavior that I find more chilling. Ed, I I think there's an apres while Le Delu should have element to this as well. Is there are people pursuing their own agendas? I mean, take take Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions, um, you know who's. Uh, yet again. Thanks, by the way, for throwing in the Beauregard. I just, I just have to sort of. Uh, only a southerner of his political disposition would have a middle name like that. So I, I, I like using it. It's also a word one never gets the chance to use. Um, a name one never gets the chance to use. Think, think of him and and the degree of humiliation publicly and privately. More, more from Woodward's book there um, that he is subjected to by Trump day in, day out, the entire time. Uh, the latest being, you know, this tweet sarcastically thanking him for the DAJ opening um, these two prosecutions of sitting congressmen before the midterms. Um, think, though, of what he's doing with the rest of his day in terms of the DOJ's agenda. Uh, he is pushing um, for, for it to become, to, to make it easier for states to uh, to, to shrink um, the electoral register. Um, he, he is um, uh, pushing against um, some of the um, racially um, sensitive changes that Eric Holder under the Obama administration tried to make to um, the police service um, services and the prison system. He is pushing an agenda that he's always believed in throughout his senatorial career. Um, and he's able to do that since he's either got a very thick hide or no shame, um, whilst having a president um, describe him as, uh, mimic him apparently in these very belittling terms as this sort of brainless guy from Alabama, he's still able to push through what he apparently deeply believes in, which is a horribly reactionary um, agenda. So he probably thinks he's doing God's work. Um, and and that would describe um, many people. I mean, you mentioned Mitch McConnell and, you know, the sort of normal order of business of cramming the courts um, and flouting, you know, whatever is left of Senate convention to, um, to, to cram them in as quickly as possible before the midterms. Um, but I don't know, look at Betsy De DeVos at, at, at um, the Department of Education and what she's doing for uh, the for-profit um, education sector. Um, uh, and um, look at um, the sort of pet um, the, the pet policies, um, very eccentric, but nevertheless sort of pre-Trumpian, that Ben Park Carson is pushing through at HUD. I mean, there, there are all kinds of agendas being pushed ahead 
um, amidst this uh, sort of crazy house chaos uh, uh, um, in the White House by a Republican Party that has been doing this for quite some time. It is it has been flouting norms, um, norms that were, you know were already very weak, but before Trump um, was elected, um, the fact that they're dramatically um, weakening now doesn't mean to say that um, doesn't mean to say that the Republicans in positions of, of power in this administration don't know what they're doing and don't think they're advancing their agenda. The apremois le deluge element is that yeah, I don't believe that even if you know Trump were removed and Pence became president, that that he would be considered a front runner in 2020. I might be wrong, but I think there is there is the sense that liberals also hold that there is a demographic change coming, and that uh, the uh, the conservative movement is doing its best to slow down, thwart, and delay that change. Um, Trump might well have, have actually accelerated um, how quickly that change comes. And I think the conservative agenda is accelerating um, uh, its programs. Um, we only got about five minutes left. And David, I would be remiss if I didn't turn to one of the other issues that the Republicans seem to want to put into the win column one way or another between now and the election. Uh, and it relates in part to some of these revelations in the Woodward book of, you know, Gary Cohn pulling off documents off the desk and trying to stop the president from blowing up um, NAFTA uh, and to discussions last week with Mexico allegedly reaching some kind of an agreement and then discussions with Canada in which not only was no agreement reached, but there were revelations of the president saying nasty things about Canada. Um, and I know you um, live much of the year in Canada. You're from there originally. Your sister, I think, is in the Canadian Senate. Uh, and somehow the United States has ended up at war with the nicest country in the world. How did, <laughs> how did that happen? Um, that, that happened, I think, inadvertently. That, that um, President Trump thought he could um, muscle uh, muscle his way to um, a deadline. He, the, his goal here, remember, is to somehow renegotiate NAFTA before Lopez Obrador, the new president of Mexico, takes office on the at the beginning of December, knowing that he helped to elect Lopez Obrador by tilting Mexico in a more nationalist direction. It's going to be more difficult to do business with Lopez Obrador. Um, that the Trump people are especially concerned, Lopez Obrador is going to be very hostile to more opening up of the Mexican energy sector to foreign investment. And that is the big prize that um, dazzles the Trump people vis-a-vis -vis Mexico. So they're in this hurry. We, they have to get this deal done, and they think they can muscle Canada. The, um, the, the, dis the problem they're discovering, and this is maybe something about the way American institutions work, is the ability to muscle Canada is a race not between U.S. and Canadian power, but between the ideology of the Trump administration and the venality of the Republican Congress. Because um, the Mexico-U.S., you want to call it an agreement, it's not detailed enough, but concept, um, contains a lot of important giveaways for specific industries, especially pharmaceuticals, that are much more valuable to those industries if Canada comes aboard than if Canada does not. Um, one of the things in the Mexican paper, for example, is an extension of the patent protection on drugs. Um, from eight year, current eight years to ten, uh, it's not. It's not. That's a nice piece of um, tasty uh, deliciousness from the, from the pharmaceutical industry from the point of view of Mexico. But including Canada, which is a bigger economy that spends more in healthcare, that's a really flavorful slice. And if Canada, if, you know, Trump says, "Well, I'll blow up NAFTA," 
that invites Canada to um, shorten the protection for pharmaceuticals. Canada's home to very little pharmaceutical research and a big generic drug industry. So that's what I mean. It's nice that all these Congress people say nice things about Canada, but what is driving them is there are their concerns for highly specific industries that have um, a lot at stake in making sure that Canada is included in Mex not just Mexico. David, David, I have one really important question to ask you about Canada and uh, Canadian economics, which is why is the Canadian dollar referred to as a loony? <laughs> because on the back of the Canadian dollar coin is a picture of a loony. <laughs> but that's and, not a good enough answer, I think. <laughs> I, think um, to, and, I think you guys need to look at that issue. And, and the $2 coin with a polar bear on it is called a toonie. A loony and a toonie. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. What's not to love about Canada? <laughs> <laughs> um, can't you know it's true you, you, you could have ended up with something with a beaver on the back or something and it would just not have turned out very well <laughs> well how can you not have a loony no i think the idea that your currency is called for looney tunes i think is is is, is pretty great um but canada is should not be canada's a, a country facing exactly the same kinds of, of pressures and challenges that are true um, throughout the developed world. Um, and the tendency of Americans to, to turn Canada into the perfect alternative to everything they don't like in the United States um, both misreads Canada and misreads their universalism. Um, and uh, the, the Justin Trudeau government is in a lot more trouble uh, than most Americans realize, driven by some things to do with its environmental and energy policies, but also driven by its loss of control of Canada's borders. And there, there is a very by Canadian standards, large influx of illegal border crossers from the United States, basically people who are in the United States without status, who are worried that they will be apprehended um, by the new, more vigorous enforcement in the United States, and who are therefore are crossing the Canadian border, either formal checkpoints or just um, you know, it's a big border, um, and then seeking, and there and are now thousands of these people. And at first, the Trudeau government, with its eye to Canadian ethnic politics, was very welcoming. That invited more. And the reaction against these border crossers is building and is, is really cutting into um, the never overwhelming popularity uh, of, of the Trudeau government. He's now in, in the high 30s, which in a multi-party system gets you by. But, you know, basically it's been through the summer head to head with the conservatives um, in an almost perfect tie with the conservatives saying, when do you come up with a policy to protect the border against the illegal border crossers and the Trudeau government not having an answer? It's kind of a neat twist, right, that the conservatives in Canada are using the failure of the conservatives in the United States to achieve their goals or their success at, at, at adding pressure on some of illegal immigrants here as a way of, of pressuring Trudeau. Um, well, David, first of all, we're glad you've joined us here for this uh, first foray of yours into deep state radio. Um, and, 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 and we appreciate the insights into... Um, Canada, a country was certainly under-discussed as well as Trump, and I recommend everybody to look to Trumpocracy. Um, I, I know that Ed and Rosa will be back for our next episode, but I do want to say to everybody as a reminder that next week uh, we will be launching DeepStateRadioNetwork.com, our website. Uh, with it will come uh, announcements of some new forms of content from us, some new features, and a whole package of features for members um, that will allow you both to support us, get some good swag, get some special content, deepen your relationship with Deep State Radio. And the way to do it is 
um, to send us uh, 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 to go to deepstateradionetwork.com right now and 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 give us your email address, and we'll send you a way to get a discount for that membership. Um, and uh, I encourage you to do that because it's not that expensive to begin with, but it will give you a whole bunch of new features that I think if you're a regular Deep State Radio listener, you will like. Uh, and it'll also help us grow Deep State Radio and introduce a whole bunch of, of new features, and some of which we've hinted at. We're going to be doing some live events. We're going to be doing some new podcasts. We're going to have some new kinds of content on the site. Like David is going to be singing more. Me personally, I think you mean David Sanger. In that case. <laughs> um, um, uh, Ed, Ed, this is the moment to to back you into corners you can't get out of, David, by announcing to our listeners that you're going to be doing interpretive dances on YouTube. No, no, but I will do interpretive dances on the podcast, which will not be visible. <laughs> uh, in any event, we strongly encourage you to go register and be part of all of that. In the meantime, um, tune in soon for the next episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you to Ed. Thank you to David. And thank you to Rosa. We'll see you all soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.